Welcome to this APTA podcast. Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. Hello, I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ. And today, I have as my guest, Dr. Pamela Dunlap. She's with the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Pittsburgh. Welcome. Thank you, it's great to be here. We're gonna talk about an article that she and her colleagues recently published in PTJ. Now the title is Effects of a Physical Therapy Intervention on GPS Indicators of Community Mobility in Older Adults. This was a secondary analysis of a, a randomized controlled trial. And just to give a quick synopsis, and then we'll talk about it, the study looked at the effects of two interventions, a standard strength and endurance intervention uh, compared with a standard plus timing and coordination training intervention. And the focus was on community mobility and participation, which was measured using global positioning systems. And the study included 166 community-dwelling older adults. The authors talk about the findings of no significant within or between group changes in community mobility or participation at all time points, 12, 24, and 36 weeks post-randomization. Dr. Dunlap, this is a really interesting study. And as I had mentioned earlier, it really piqued my interest. So could you talk a little bit about, for our listeners, the theoretical rationale behind your hypothesis that either of these interventions or both would have an impact on community mobility or community participation in older adults? Sure. So our rationale for the standard strength and endurance intervention um, for improving community mobility was that we thought that this intervention may increase the physiologic capacity of an individual to walk, which may target specific impairments, which may have hindered their community mobility. However, we felt that the standard plus timing and coordination training would have even greater effects on community mobility because this training uses goal-oriented task-specific interventions that target improvements in coordination, behavioral planning, and motor control. So because successful community mobility often requires individuals to plan and adapt and sometimes complete multiple tasks while walking, we hypothesize that that standard plus timing and coordination training um, that's really aimed to improve that automaticity of walking would translate to greater improvements in community mobility. You know, as someone who has um, studied a good deal about uh, community participation or, or disability. Uh, and, and I wrote an article uh, about 30 years ago now on the disablement process. Uh, we, we talked about, from a theoretical perspective, the fact that behavior would be influenced by many factors beyond just the capability to, to perform the behavior. And, and your study seems to have focused on the capability component. 
and not the other elements. Why did you think capability would translate into change in behavior? If I could push you a little bit on that. Yeah, well, we do know also from um, some of the earlier um, pilot studies with this timing and coordination training um, that they did find that this type of training resulted in greater gate efficiency, uh, gate efficacy, and community participation, which was measured using self-report measures. So that was another reason why we kind of thought this might translate into improved community mobility as well. Okay. Um, I have to say, as someone who's worked in this area, I wasn't surprised that you didn't have an effect. Um, now, I will say, though, however, you did have an education component. Um, you did this modified group lifestyle balance component. Could you talk a little bit about that and, and why that was part of the intervention? Yeah, so this was... Um actually modeled from the diabetes prevention program. So it was designed more as um, a way to help individuals with levels of physical activity. So the goal for the program was for the individuals in the study to maintain 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity weekly. So the session topics were things like safety with exercise, um, problem solving and finding opportunities to exercise, staying motivated, stress and time management. So I think of it almost as like a general health and wellness type of behavioral intervention rather than a behavioral intervention that's targeted specifically to increase participation or community mobility. Okay, well, as you look at it now, having done this study, and found the results that you did, what would you advise for future work in this area if the goal is in fact to change community participation behavior? Yeah, I think that future studies should take a more individualized approach to address some of the barriers to community mobility because it could be so many different things. It could be related to the environment um, that the person is in. It could be related to find a fin financial component or a psychological component, you know, motivation, things like that. So I think identification of specific goals and barriers to community mobility is important. And physical therapy interventions may be just one small piece of, you know, a successful community mobility intervention. Well, I, I'm with you 100% on that. <laughs> and, and I think there is literature in the gerontology field that would support that kind of broader approach. Then um, I, I, uh, I hope we see that uh, in the future. Me too. Uh, let's talk a bit about your, your measures, because again, I was very interested in, in your the measurement component. You used a a fairly innovative approach, the, um, the GPS logger. And you wanted to contrast the GPS approach to more classical self-report uh, approaches. And as someone who's done a lot of work on developing self-report measures, it really piqued my interest. Uh, so subjects were given a GPS data logger and they were asked to use it for a week following each of the intervention visits. And they were also asked to complete an activity log to record whether or not the device was used. And you referred to this as a, quote, more objective measure than some of the self-report measures that you, in fact, used in your study. I was surprised that you referred to that as objective, since 
there was a huge subjective component as to whether or not the subjects actually used the logger. Can you talk about why you see that as objective? Sure, yeah, and it, it's kind of vague, I think the description. Um, so we did have this logger and it was really just designed to measure whether or not the participants wore the device or took the device with them for that day. There was some components of um, description of why they may not have used the device. So it did get into a little bit, you know, some people would say that it snowed today, so I didn't go out as much as I would have or something like that. But when they did use the device, it didn't necessarily get into, you know, what was the purpose of their trip? How were they feeling? Was it a typical, you know, um, a day for them. So um, it didn't really get into the specifics when they actually use the device, only when they didn't use the device. In, in that sense, you saw it as more objective in terms of not getting into the feelings and the reasoning behind what they were doing. Right. And you compared the GPS tracker to um, several self-report measures. The one in this article was the life space assessment but you also use the late life function and disability instrument, uh, portions of which also focus on part participation. Um, and in your article, you say, from your perspective, they, they measure somewhat different constructs. And in that sense, it's a validity issue. And it, it, could you talk a little bit about why you see it as more of a validity issue than a reliability issue? Well, one of the issues or one of the reasons why I say that is because in previous studies, there have been relatively weak associations between um, community mobility measured using GPS versus community mobility measured using the life space assessment. Also, I think that, you know, we also know that perception does not always equal actual abilities. So, you know, for example, fear of falling does not always indicate actual, actual falls risk. Um, so I think, um, you know, likely they are measuring different, slightly different constructs. I think the other thing that enters into it as well is, um, the recall bias that is, that may be present when using something like the life space assessment, when it asks the person to recall over the past month, how much they have moved in their daily life. Recall bias is a reliability issue, not a validity issue. And if, if the life space assessment is measuring something other than community uh, participation or community mobility, what is it measuring from, let's say from a, uh, from a theoretical perspective, say from the ICF uh, framework, what, what, what is it measuring if it's not community participation? Yeah, I see, I mean, I see that, I see the GPS um, measures falling into kind of that activity and participation area of the ICF model. I also see the life space assessment um, falling into the activity and participation space as well. I think the life space assessment also to a degree gets at um, environmental constructs as it does um, ask about whether or not an individual needs an assistive device or the assistance of another person, for example, to get to different spaces. So 
in the life space assessment, someone could be totally reliant on someone else to say drive anywhere. Um, they would still be going to those spaces, um, but they would be reliant on another person to do so. So somewhat of a different dimension of participation. Yeah, and perhaps. GPS. What was the uh, adherence to the GPS tracker over the week? And why did you choose a week time? That's a great question. Um, so I think our participants did fairly well uh, with the adherence to using the GPS device. For example, at baseline, we only had about 18 individuals who were not adherent, meaning they either had less than five days of wear or they lost the device or something like that. Um, that number did grow larger with each study time point. So at 36 weeks, we had approximately 27 individuals being non-adherent. As far as the device, the suggested wear time really varies in the literature. So in a recent systematic review, the range was from one to 30 days. And a number of studies we found had used the seven-day wear period. We felt that this wouldn't be too burdensome on the participant. However, a longer wear period, I think you could argue, would have allowed us to capture a more accurate representation of overall community mobility um, if there was, in fact, adequate in adherence to a longer duration of wear. You know, the GPS tracker is a really interesting modality. If you were to use it in future studies, how, how do you think you could enhance its uh, adherence? If you That's think yeah, that's a good question. I think um, for us, we used a, an, a device that was, you know, it wasn't a wearable necessarily. So it wasn't like a watch or something like that. It was an actual device that you could slip into your pocket or put into your purse or something like that. I think something that's worn might be a little bit easier to, um, you know, remember to put on or something like that, rather than just grabbing this device on your way out the door. I think, you know, participants may have forgotten it a number of times. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, I think, oh, this is just an issue with GPS in general, but um, battery life is, you know, another problem. So if you can have a GPS tracker that doesn't require being plugged in as often, that can, um, I think, help with um, use as well. Do you think you could build it into, say, an iPhone or a uh, watch that someone would more typically carry all the time? And it might be easier to remember if it, like, I always take my phone with me. And if it was part of my phone, I would say my adherence would be really high. But if I had to, you know, grab a separate device for a study, the likelihood of my getting it all the time is probably a lot less. Yeah. And so I think that is probably coming. I think right now, you know, if you've noticed, for example, if you have to use GPS for a trip or something like that, it really does a number on your battery life. So with newer technology, I think that's certainly something um, that will happen. But I think there has to be some progress in the area of battery life for using GPS on your phone or other devices. Well, I have to commend you. I think it was um, a really interesting secondary analysis. Uh, I went back and I, I read your primary work, and it was a very nice study. And I believe you published that in JAMA Open Network. 
And I would encourage people to take a look at that as well as uh, this article in PTJ. Your intervention was successful. Both of them were successful in improving gait, which was your target. But I think you really uh, highlight the challenge if you really want to change behavior of older individuals, physical therapists are clearly going to have to do more than focus on gait. Yes. And so I, I applaud you're doing it because I think it's really an, another opportunity to underscore that message. And, and I hope in your future work, I hope you go after participation behavior and come up with an intervention that's really targeted on the behavior. I think that could also yield an important contribution for physical therapists to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know other you know researchers have done things like providing resources, you know, such as walking maps and pedometers and even facilitating like social walking groups and things like that. So I think all of those um, could be potentially really nice uh, and useful components to a, an intervention in uh, improving community mobility. Well, thank you for both doing the study and for taking the time to discuss it with me today. You're welcome. I just want to acknowledge um, this, this work was part of my postdoctoral fellowship work um, with Dr. Andrea Rosso, and the PRIMA study was led by Drs. Jen Brock and Jesse Van Swearingen. So I just want to um, acknowledge them and thank them for the opportunity to work with them. Appropriately so. You can find more APTA podcasts like this one on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, or by visiting apta.org slash podcasts. Thanks for listening.